just, uh, just before we, we look at envy in, in, in a little more detail, let me just kind of fill in the blanks or tell you a bit about the journey so far. And we've said that despite the fact that the seven deadly sins don't appear as a list anywhere in Scripture, we still believe that there's real value in exploring these biblical issues for lots of reasons. Although we have, as we've introduced uh, these evenings, we've sort of said there's two key reasons why it's worth looking at these biblical issues. The first is because sin remains a serious issue and should never be trivialized irrespective of how our prevailing culture sees it, deals with it, or tries to deconstruct it. And a series like this just gives us an opportunity to just clarify that, that, that we still do believe that sin is a serious issue. The second reason for doing it is because a study of these uh, seven specific sins can be or is a catalyst for growth if it's done as part of spiritual formation. Let me explain what I mean by that. Sin is not totally eradicated from the life of a Christian. And therefore, a willingness to address these specific sins is a discipleship issue. It is part of our character development. It is part of our ongoing uh, personal integrity journey. And as I do, for those who were out this morning, I thought it was really interesting just what, what Mervyn read from Second from Peter. And some of the things that sort of just jumped out at me were, were these phrases where Peter says, you ought to live a holy and godly life. Speaking to Christians. And then he says, you've got to make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. And by looking at a series like this, that is part of that process. And last Sunday night, uh, we we thought about the sin of pride, the the first of the, the seven, which some people would say is the beginning of all sin. And we thought about how uh, when we consider the fall of Lucifer, we can understand why some people describe it as the beginning of all sin because it it, it led him uh, to fall from heaven. And then everything was set in motion from there, so to speak. It is the one sin that leads to every other vice, to quote C.S. Lewis. That's what he thought about pride. And we suggested that the best way to confront pride or, or to combat pride is via the pursuit of humility. That if pride is the vice, then humility is the virtue. And humility is something that actually the Bible tells us or instructs us to put on. It's something we've got to choose to wear. And whenever Jesus was teaching about this subject, he actually said, you've got to learn to humble yourselves. Because those who humble themselves will be exalted. And as we thought about that, I offered two pathways to humility which were confession and service that if you want to keep pride in check and you want to pursue humility then you need to practice those two spiritual disciplines those two holy habits on a regular basis this evening our second deadly sin is envy and out of all the sins this one is is different Different in the sense that virtually everybody recognizes and would accept that there is absolutely no pleasure in it whatsoever. And so for many people, as I say, Christian, this is what they would say. It's different. 
Let me explain what I mean by that, although there is a slight danger, I recognize, of, of being misunderstood. Almost every other sin or vice can be, and, and I use this word slightly nervously but intentionally, every other sin or vice can be enjoyed at some level for at least a little while. So, for example, the relief that comes through an outburst of anger can leave you feeling pretty good for a while. Gluttony initially tastes great. Pride can make us feel good about ourselves temporarily. The promised kick of lust is pleasurable. But when it comes to envy, there's a definite difference. From the word go, it makes you miserable. So as one writer says, the appetite never ceases, or its appetite never ceases, yet its only satisfaction is endless self-torment. Or according to one of the early church fathers, as a moth gnaws a garment, so doth envy consume a man. And whenever you turn to God's word, you find that the, the wisdom writer of the book of Proverbs said exactly the same thing, made exactly the same point long before anyone else did. And they wrote, envy rots the bones. Now that doesn't mean that it literally rots your bones. But if you are envious, it does mean that it will destroy you from the inside out. So there's nothing ever enjoyable about envy at any level. Down through the years, different people have suggested a radical overhaul of the list of the seven deadly sins. And many non-Christians view the list as dated. It's irrelevant. It's obsolete. But it's interesting how whenever someone offers a revised list, and many people have offered a revised list, but it's really interesting how they still include this particular one. Envy still gets a look in. So, for example, whenever the philosopher Julian Baggini proposed a new list, he suggested things like exploitation. That's a greater sin these days. Dogmatism. Vanity. Complacency. Thoughtfulness. So let's get rid of pride. Let's get rid of lust. Let's get rid of anger. Let's get rid of all those things. These are the real issues now. But actually, if you read his list, he still included covetousness. He still believed there was room for envy because he recognized it's still a major and life-reducing human problem. You see, our culture and society increasingly struggles to see, well, what's wrong with a bit of harmless lust? or pride, or anger. And it will say that things like sloth and gluttony, well, they're more like unfortunate personality traits, are they not? They're not serious sins. But envy, well, that's different. As Joseph Epstein says, of all the deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. It seems that irrespective of your starting point, 
irrespective of where you're coming from, whether that's Christian or other ways. We believe that this sin, this face, has no appeal. It's, it's deeply unattractive. Novelist Sadie Smith writes, We don't mind being seen to be angry or lustful or even lazy, but we dislike being seen as envious. It is unattractive. And our vanities superseded our virtues some time ago. So what exactly is envy? What exactly is it? Well, here's how one dictionary defines it. It's painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another. Joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. I say that again. It's the painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another. Joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. Another source describes envy as this. It's the desire for others' traits. Others' status. Others' abilities. Other people's situation. Now it is, and this is where, I must admit, I've been kind of preparing for this this week. This is where I've, I've, I've not come on stuck, I don't think, but, but it's hard to. It is similar to jealousy. Similar to jealousy. And we often use the two words and terms interchangeably, and that's fine. So we say, I'm so jealous that you got to go on that holiday. Or, I'm so envious of your new car. But the thing about envy is that envy just seems to go a little bit further. A little bit deeper. It almost comes across a little darker. And that's because... The envious person doesn't just want what someone else has. They envy them. It becomes personal. We would never say, I jealous you. But we do say, I envy you. And when we start going down that road, you find you become increasingly discontent with who you are. And that's when we're starting to get to the heart of this issue. We are increasingly disconsent with who we are. And we are alarmingly resentful, not just with what someone else has, but with someone else. Full stop. So people are seen as rivals. And we engage in this game of comparing and contrasting ourselves with others. And it's that comparative mindset and attitude that is the hallmark of envy. It's its distinguishing feature. And so the envious ultimately compare themselves and their lot with other people and generally don't like what they discover. So they feel less than. They feel inferior to. And therefore they begin to want what another person has. Not just because they want that thing. Although ultimately that is, or that is part of it. But because of what having that thing will potentially say about them as a person. In other words, if I had that thing, then it would say this about me. And it would make me as good as 
in fact, potentially better than them. So, for example, and it's just an example, it's not about having a particular car. It's not about having a car like the one our neighbor has. The issue is about what being the owner of that particular car says about who we are. It's the personal respect that it might provide us. It's the kudos. It's the admiration that we might get or that we might feel if we are seen to be driving a car like theirs. So getting the right car, in a sense, is a means to an end. It's the means of becoming the right person. So this is it's a deep issue. And it's a deeply unattractive thing. Let me put it like this and sticking with our example. It's not to have that car is not just to lack that thing, but not to have that car makes the envier feel I'm less of a person. I'm less worthy. I'm less admirable. I'm less successful. And so envy is about who we are as a person in comparison. And it creates a sense of inferiority which then breeds a lack of self-love. And that's what leads to all sorts of negative attitudes and behavior. And that's why this is such a dangerous and deadly sin. And as envy takes root one of the ways it manifests itself, and and here's where it becomes even more disturbing, and here's why it's so unattractive, is that the envious person is just as concerned that his or her rival doesn't have that thing or certain things. Shouldn't have them. In fact, whenever envy gets a grip of you, you want something to happen that means that other person no longer has that or has those things. Joseph uh, Epstein, and I've already quoted him, he tells this story to illustrate the point. He says, once there was an, it sounds like the start of a joke, but it's not a joke. Once there was an English woman, a French man, and a Russian, I don't know why he chose those three people. Please don't read into anything like that. Uh, if you're any of these, please don't take offense. Once there was an English woman, a French man, and a Russian, and each was given a single wish by one of those genies who almost relentlessly pops out of a bottle. The English woman says that a friend of hers has a cottage in the Cotswolds and that she would like a similar cottage with the addition of two extra bedrooms, a second bath and a bubbling brook running in front of it. The Frenchman says that his best friend has a beautiful blonde mistress and he would like such a mistress himself but a redhead instead of a blonde with longer legs and a bit more by way of culture and chic. Don't judge me for telling us. (laughs) The Russian, when asked what he would like, tells of a neighbor who has a cow that gives a vast quantity of the richest milk which yields the heaviest cream and the purest butter. I want that cow, says the Russian, and then pauses. I want that cow dead. And that's the point. That actually you don't just want what that person has, but you're actually wanting what that person has to be taken away from them. Because then they no longer become a rival. And so envy targets and it homes in on the other person. 
And so, for example, with envy, and this is the, you start resenting others. You start resenting them that they have what you want, what you would like. Plus, and though you'd never articulate this, you actually want bad and unfortunate things to happen to them. And so whenever you hear of something bad happening to a rival, if envy has taken root, there's something within you who's quite pleased to hear that. I don't know how many people have uh, seen the film Amadeus. Many people have seen it. Okay, lots. Chronicles the relationship between the composer Antonio Salieri and his famous rival Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. So he prayed to God for musical talent. But whenever Mozart burst onto the scene and received major attention, Salieri was enraged. Because as he compared himself to Mozart, he became incredibly envious. And it wasn't enough then to become like Mozart. He had to become better than him. He had to become superior to him. But because Mozart was far more talented, well then his strategy, which is typical of those who are consumed by envy, his strategy was to take Mozart down. To ruin him rather than emulate him. You see, envy's impulses, ruinous impulses, are always personal. Envy wrecks relationships. It's one of the key reasons why the Tenth Commandment speaks specifically about the danger of coveting your neighbor's possessions. It's not just about coveting possessions. It's about coveting your neighbor's possessions. You see, envy works best in close proximity. We don't tend to envy people out there. You may want to take me up on this. We don't tend to envy people that are beyond our reach. Even the celebrity, the big name. We, of course, yeah, there are times when we say we we wish what they had. But there's enough distance between us and them to keep this under wraps. We generally don't envy people who are quite different from we are. It's those around us we envy. It's our neighbour. It's our colleague in work. It's our boss. It's our friend. It's the person sitting beside us in front of us, behind us in church. It's one of our siblings. It's the people we actually relate to. And that's what's so tragic about this sin. It damages relationships. Because when it is left unaddressed... When it is allowed to bed down, when it is given space to breathe, it can and often does lead to rash and harsh decisions and actions. It can drive someone to do pretty awful things. It can lead on to further sin, and like any sin, with quite severe consequences. Let me give you a few biblical examples. Cain and Abel. One of the earliest stories of relational breakdown. God accepts Abel's offering, but not Cain's. So how does he react? Yes, for sure, there's anger. We know that. Next week's deadly sin. But there was also envy. Why should God favor Abel more than me? And with this toxic mixture of envy and anger, it leads to the first murder, and there would be many more. Joseph, 
I think it's fair to say that his brothers envied him as he walked about in his new coat. It actually says that in Genesis 37. And what does that do? It leads to hatred. We read they hated him. They could not speak peaceably to him, which then led to what? To murderous intent. Or even as we consider the death of Jesus. And I don't think I'd ever made this connection before. I don't think I'd ever noticed this before. But did you know that it was out of envy that the religious leaders sent Christ to face the Roman governor? That then ultimately led to his death. Here's how Matthew recalls the story. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over. It was out of envy. Never picked up on that before. The Pharisees envied Jesus. Why? Well, we could begin to talk about that for the rest of this evening, but it's a very interesting thing to think through. But because they envied him, he's a rival. They wanted to see him dead. Now, those might seem like extreme examples, because in each case, people ended up taking or having the desire to take another person's life. But then again, is that not exactly what happens when you envy? You want someone else's life. Or as we've already said, at the very least, you want their life to kind of fall apart a little. And so at the end of the day, the problem with envy is that it's directly opposed to love. To love is to seek the good of others. It's to rejoice when others are blessed. It's to rejoice with what others have. Their gifts, their abilities, their situation. That's to love someone. To envy them is to seek to destroy that. It's to sorrow over their blessings and gifts. See, the greatest commandment instructs us to love God above all and love our neighbor as ourselves. Envy undercuts those. It's one of the reasons why, according to the Apostle Paul, love does not envy. Envy reveals a dramatic lack of love for others because of what it stirs up within us. But also, as we've already said, it reveals a critical lack of love for self. I don't like who I am. I don't like what I've got compared to others. We want to be someone else. We want to have what someone else has. And then ultimately what that does is that creates dysfunction in our relationship with God. So envy undercuts all the relationships that we were meant to have and enjoy. Envy is a loser's game. It's spiritually dangerous. It's disastrous. It rots your bones. It consumes you from the inside out. And it's a game we are doomed to lose even if we win. For to win at envy is to destroy the possibility of love between yourself and others. To win at envy is to destroy the possibility of love between yourself and God. To be envious is to be determined to live in a way that prevents gratitude 
contentment, love and happiness. And relationships of love are the only thing that will truly make us happy. Relationships of love are the only truly thing that will make us happy. Love for God. Love for one another. And love for ourselves. So how do we overcome this deadly sin? Just as I finish. How do we confront it? Well, let me suggest that one of the critical ways to escape this vice is to find a completely different foundation for our self-worth. It's got to start from here. You see, envy depends on and comes from and is fed by comparing ourselves to others. And as I've said, we often then feel inferior, we feel less than, we feel not as good as. And then that breeds and that feeds and that intensifies a lack of self-love. And therefore, to overcome envy, we need to work from, we need to embrace a new unconditionally loved vision of who we are. We need to see ourselves as God sees us. We need to see ourselves from our Father's perspective. From a God who says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you and I have called you by name and you are mine. And you are precious in my sight and I love you. Is that how you feel this evening? That you are loved already and unconditionally. Not because of your moral worthiness. Not because of your attractiveness. Not because of your worldly achievements. But simply because you are God's own child. And that's the basis. That's the starting point. And how do we know that? Well, one God has said it time and time again. But not only has God said it, he's shown it. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. You see, God so loved you and I that he gave. Gave Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection is proof that you and I are so loved. And when you accept that, you embrace that, when you live in the light of that, then you can begin to experience a peace. An inner peace that transcends all understanding. An inner peace that brings contentment. I go back to Proverbs 14.30. I said it, 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 I quoted it as saying, Envy rots your bones. It's not the entire proverb. There's an opening to that. And it's this. A heart at peace gives life to the body. But envy rots your bones. You see, that's the liberating alternative to envy. A heart that is at peace with God. A heart that is at peace with others. A heart that is at peace with self. An inner contentment that then frees me up not to compare myself to you not to be envious of you but that frees me up to love you to love you 
as I love myself? And then in many ways that also takes us on to, well, what's the virtue that combats envy? Humility is the one that combats pride. Contentment is the one that combats envy. That's the virtue that keeps it in check. That's the virtue that says, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. It's the virtue that encourages us to reach a place where, like the Apostle Paul, we can say, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself in. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. Deep inner peace. In whatever situation, whether I'm well fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in need. You see, the envious are never content. They're never satisfied. They are never at peace. So what then is the necessary discipline that takes us to that place of being content? Pride was the vice. Humility the virtue. The disciplines that take us there, confession and service. Envy is the vice. Contentment is the virtue. What is the discipline that takes us there? Just one this week. Gratitude. An explicit choice to acknowledge that all I am and all I have has been given to me as a gift. A gift to be celebrated with joy. I don't need to compare myself. I don't need to contrast myself with anyone else. I just need to be thankful. That's countercultural. I need to count my blessings. Because whenever I express my gratitude to God on a regular basis for his love for me, for showing me that love in Jesus, and for allowing me to experience a heart at peace, well then it profoundly challenges any tendency I might have to be envious. Because as someone has said, envy cannot grow in a thankful heart. And so I suppose, to sum it all up, the issue is, are we thankful people? Are we thankful for who we are? Are we thankful for our lot in life? Or are we always comparing ourselves to others and wishing we were like them? Making them into rivals and actually wanting certain things to happen to them, that those things are taken away from them so that we become better than them. It's a deadly sin. And it wrecks many relationships. I am eternally grateful today for the love in my heart and the peace in my soul. God, thank you for the blessings you have bestowed upon me today. Help me to share your generosity and love with those I meet.